All right, let me welcome you to uh, RUF, our final one of the semester. Um, man, which is always a, uh, it's, I don't, it's a mixture of emotions for me. Um, I do, I want to uh, say thank you. Uh, one of the, um, the best and the worst thing about RUF is the same. It, it is our students. Every, um, every year we say goodbye to people that, um, that, man, just love my family and, uh, and we love you. I'm profoundly aware that as you walk through college, there are a thousand things that you could do with your time. And the fact that so many of you come uh, and many of you have gotten, we've gotten to know uh, just makes me thankful. Um, so thanks for coming. Uh, you'll, you'll be missed. Uh, if I start crying during this, it's somebody, I'll say somebody's cutting onions or something. But, uh, um, and here's the other reason I want to thank you. I, somebody made a comment to me the other day when, when we were talking, and they said, man, I bet... Uh, I bet you get tired of hearing a lot of mess of college students, and uh, actually I don't, uh, because my because my life's a mess. But not only do I hear, uh, yes, I hear a lot of mess. But what you don't know is, y'all are a profound encouragement to me because y'all remind me that Jesus is real. Uh, I've gotten to see Jesus really change lives in the college campus. I've gotten to, I get to see students graduate their senior year who are just different than their freshman year, and are leaving this place loving Jesus and loving His church. Uh, so thank you. I want to thank in particular, um, hope we get on this, Tim Greider, Cameron Clark, and Wilson Witten, who are seniors who have been playing. Um, they do a lot of work uh, that probably behind the scenes you don't even know about. I'm not going to say goodbye to Anthony Degani yet. That's reserved for Sunday Night Fellowship. So, All right. Um, let me tell you, uh, kind of by way of intro, a couple months ago I read a short article about a 60-year-old man, 76-year-old man who walked into a hospital complaining of some intense pain in his arm. And the man's arm was swelling, and thankfully, instead of just kind of doing the simple, like giving him ibuprofen or maybe even kind of draining some, uh, some of the arm of swelling, they actually ran some tests. And what they found embedded within his arm was a seven-inch metal tur turn signal from his Ford Thunderbird that he had wrecked 50 years before. And in that wreck, he had broken his hip, so the doctors had spent all the time focusing on his hip that they had never seen the seven-inch piece of metal that had lodged so deep within his arm. And so after a 45-minute surgery, they removed the lever and handed it back to him. Now, I just want you to think about that scenario. It's amazing, right? That'd be a great one if you were him, that you just have that story in your back pocket for whatever tough story somebody has, you get to one-up them every time about this this metal in your arm that you've had. But think about the big picture. There was something that was visibly wrong with this man. He had pain. He had swelling in his arm. If the doctors had only treated the symptoms, his condition would have gotten worse and worse. He would have deteriorated. True healing only came when they, dig, when they, when they went really deep and found the source of the pain. And tonight, God gives us the 10th commandment, and it is supposed to be a devastating blow because it reveals that our problem runs all the way to our heart, that our hatred, our stealing, our adultery, all the stuff that we've been talking about that takes away from the beautiful life, all that stuff is really just symptoms. And it's symptoms of a deep problem within us that's called coveting, our lack of contentment. And God loves us enough to not just treat the symptoms, to heal our problems and to dislodge them. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, 
many of us come uh, on Thursday nights in different places. Some of us have come, we've come limping in um, because we, have, we feel beaten down. Uh, we feel beaten down by our own sin, by what this semester has looked like, and we're just ready for it to end. Uh, others of us are sad. We have, I'll say, we, we believe, uh, we believe a lie that the best four years are wrapped up in college and we wondered what's next. Um, others of us, Lord, are, are profoundly excited to be here. Either way, Lord, we need you to convince us again that you're real, that your grace covers all sin, that holiness is real life, and that you're better than we thought. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here is the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, starting verse 1 and 2, then 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God. Second week in a row, we're awesome. Thank you, Tim. Tim, you'll never get to do that for me again. <sighs> oh. um, so, uh, all right, let's look at the, uh, at the beauty of contentment, how God's command reveals our lack of contentment with our coveting, the treatment of the symptoms, but then the real secret of contentment. All right, first, the beauty of contentment. Almost every week, what I've been asking you to consider, no matter your background, no matter your familiarity with the Ten Commandments, no matter your previous experience with its teaching, I've asked you to honestly consider the beauty of the Ten Commandments. That they really do hold out for you the beautiful life that you were made for, that God designed for you to live, because they're a reflection of who He is. And when God forbids all coveting, what He is commanding, right? Whatever God forbids, He commands the opposite. What He is commanding is a life of contentment. The person who doesn't covet is by definition a person who is satisfied and content and at peace. And I just think you know this is beautiful. I don't think I have to argue that with you. But this is saying that the Lord has designed you. You are built to be one who is at peace, who is deeply satisfied and content. And I just know that you all want that. You do. You were built for it. That is the want behind all your other wants. This is the driving force in your life. You want satisfaction and you want contentment. And I would just ask you to consider that it really might be the reason behind so much of the activity on this campus. Would it be fair to suggest that the busyness and the endless parties and the endless pursuit of the next fun event or the endless pursuit of the next phase of life, or the next job, or the next fill-in-the-blank. Might it just stem from a campus that lacks peace, that lacks contentment, and there just keeps being that next thing out there that will finally satisfy you? Could this campus actually be one that is profoundly empty? I think we know this commandment is beautiful. But second of all, the beauty of the commandment means this. The Lord actually cares about every aspect of you, right? Did you sense the depth of this commandment? The 10th commandment goes all the way to the heart. 
And yes, we've seen this with every other commandment, that the uh, seventh commandment, it doesn't just forbid adultery. It also forbids the desire of lust. And it's not just about not murdering. It's about hatred. But this one doesn't even make any references to outward actions. It just goes straight to the heart. It just is about your desires of contentment or coveting, which shows us a beautiful thing. The Lord wants all of you. He isn't just concerned with outward actions. And I want you to consider this. Only Christianity stresses that God doesn't just want conformity to rules. That he actually cares about your heart. That he actually wants to be inside of us. And he wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to change your motives and your hopes. It's the language of that he wants to be your lover. And that's a beautiful thing if you'll see it. Your teacher, your teacher for the most part does not care about the heart of how you go about your work. He just wants results. But your spouse one day doesn't just want results. Your spouse wants you to love her or him. It cares about all of you. And God is saying, I want your heart because I'll give you mine. I care about all of you. And you need to hear, you need to hear this. You will never find God's law beautiful until you see the one who's behind the law. That he's not this taskmaster king that all he cares about is conformity in some external way to his rules. But he cares little about the actual person of who you are. He is a lover that cares about your heart. And his law actually shows that. So we see the 10th commandment, the fact that the Lord cares about all of you down to your heart. And it holds out. It holds out a picture of the beautiful life because it says you were made for contentment, for satisfaction. And the good news is this. Look, if the Lord commands it, it really is attainable. You really can be content. Second of all, the revealing of our lack of content. We've seen every week, right, the Ten Commandments. First job is to be a straight edge that we hold our life up to and see just how crooked we are. The Ten Commandments' first job is to be a mirror that shows us how sinful we really are compared to the righteousness of God. And so the Tenth Commandment, when it commands contentment, or when it, what it does is it reveals just how discontent we are. It reveals how much we covet. So what does it mean to covet? Well, it needs to be said this, that God is not forbidding desire. It's okay, right? It's okay to desire. God has actually made you someone with desires, and those desires are actually good. Desires are given to you by God. The desire for friendship is healthy and good, and what that does is move you into a community of friends. The desire to eat moves you into food. Desiring a spouse or desiring marriage or food or pleasure or success or job, all those things are good, and God has given you those things. But coveting is different than desire because coveting is a distortion of a good desire. The Greek word translated as lust is the same word that gets translated as covet. And maybe that helps you see it. It is an over-desire. It is looking at something and... 
It's not saying I want this. It's saying I have to have this to be happy. I have to have this to be okay. This is where, and I have this quote on your sheet, where President Snow from the Hunger Games nails it, right? He says, what you love will actually destroy you. And that's actually true. All the stuff that you covet, all the stuff that you love so much that you can't imagine happiness without it, you think it's the key to stability, that's the thing that's going to end up killing you. So this is so key. Coveting on our lack of contentment, what it reveals about our hearts is this. We covet so much because we're empty and we're unstable and we're insecure at the heart. This command reveals our heart almost in, in a way that all the other commandments don't. So consider what this is revealing. That means the weekend party scene, okay? The one that you think reveals maturity because you can laugh about it, because you can talk about it in a way that, that seems so cool, cool and calm and collected. You think that's a sign of maturity. You think that's a sign of stability, that you can laugh about it and seem unaffected by it. But what this commandment is revealing, is what's driving this weekend life is a profound sense of emptiness within you. And you keep grabbing at something. You keep trying to fill the empty heart with the next thing. Russell Brand, an interview, um, who was a giant heroin addict, there's an interview where he was, uh, I've referenced this before, he was painstakingly honest, and he said, look, he said, heroin isn't the problem. Life is the problem. And I would just change that just a little bit and say, look, heroin isn't the problem. Our hearts are the problem. There's a profound sense of emptiness. The parties aren't the problem. The sex isn't the problem. We've already seen those are all good things. The problem is our hearts. And we are empty. And we lack contentment. And we keep trying to fill it. And it's not working. But here's the deal. The Lord keeps relating this command, did you, know it, did you notice, to your neighbor, to people. Because remember, the Ten Commandments, they are how to love God and how to love people. And what the Lord is saying is this. It is impossible to love someone if you covet what they have. Impossible. So think through a few scenarios. What happens if you covet the way that your neighbor looks, right? Or you covet your neighbor's personality, What that means is this. Instead of appreciating your friend's beauty or appreciating the richness of someone's personality, you just think, I wish I had that. I wish I had her looks or I had his social ease and humor because I would finally be happy if I had that. I would be okay. And by definition, you cannot love that person anymore because now that friend isn't a friend, that friend is competition. That friend has what you desperately need to be happy. And so guess what? You can't rejoice with her when she gets asked out. You can't can't enjoy uh, his sense of humor because it's always a threat to you. If you covet the approval and friendship that your friend so easily gets, you can't love that person. You have to beat that person. You have to beat him at what you want. 
You have to be more fun. You have to be funnier. You have to be more caring. You have to be better. Or you have to tear him down. Either way, you cannot love a person that you covet. Coveting always traffics in the world of comparison. Contentment traffics in the world of loving and serving. Or think about this. We commanded not to covet our neighbor's house. That gives the sense of, of household or situations in life. So let's say you have a friend who has great parents and yours are divorced. Which is not good, okay? Hear me say that. Or you have a friend who has wealth and you're working in college. And what happens is instead of appreciating the gifts that they have, coveting starts destroying that relationship. Because you get angry. You get overly angry when you see that person wasting money. Or when you see that person not appreciating the family situation that they have. You get bitter. Because you think they have what was the key to happiness and you see them wasting it and it just makes you so mad. And it starts destroying the relationship with them. They have what I deserve and I would appreciate it and they don't. And so you can't love and serve someone that you are bitter towards. It's impossible. And so the, the reason underneath all of our murdering and stealing and adultery is a lack of contentment. The content person never murders, never steals, never fill in the blank because he's satisfied. And can you just imagine, this is so painfully far from me that it's hard for me to imagine, but can you imagine what it would be like to actually think about tomorrow or to think about the summer or think about the next phase of life instead of it being this base note, if I can finally get there, then I'll be okay, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be stable. Can you imagine what it would look like to think about the next day or the next summer or the next phase of life with a baseness of contentment that those things are opportunities to serve and love rather than to finally be happy? And wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that feel like life? And so look, if you want the Ten Commandments to reveal our lack of beauty, all you got to do is ask yourself this question. Where do you complain? Like, what do you complain about? A content person actually never complains because he's satisfied. A covetous person is always complaining because what he thinks is missing, what he thinks will make him happy, he doesn't have, so he just complains about it. What do you complain about? So we've seen the beauty of contentment. We've seen how it reveals our covetousness because we're not content. Thirdly, the treating symptoms of, of discontentment. Remember our opening illustration, right? The man with the seven-inch, I don't know how you could forget that. The man with the seven-inch signal lodged deep within his arm. I said, right, it would have been erroneous if they had treated the symptoms without going to the, to the source of the problem. And I think most of the time the way that we, that we deal with our discontent hearts is we just try to treat the symptoms. We just try to treat the situation that we're in. And this is what Emma read back in uh, Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul in Philippians shows us. He says this, I have learned the secret of contentment. And then he walks through all these scenarios. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation, in abundance, in being brought low, in being hungry and having enough. In whatever situation, Paul says, I've learned to be content. 
Which means Paul says contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. Period. And most of the time, the way we treat our discontentment is we try to change circumstances. Because we think circumstances are the problem. We think circumstances are the reason for my emptiness and my discontent. And most of us, even if you're a Christian, in our Christian life, we never get past praying for our circumstances to change, for our situation to change, for my suffering to end. And all we need from God is better friends or better parents or a more stable future or more understanding professors or a better day tomorrow. That's the summation of our prayer life. And the Ten Commandments reveal this. As long as you think the circumstances are the key, all you're going to do is treat the symptom. And you'll miss it. What we never believe is this, that the Lord actually cares about your heart. And the Lord is much more concerned about changing you than changing your circumstances. That's what he's about. And so one way we try to treat the symptoms is we try to just change our circumstances. Another way that we try to beat coveting and achieve contentment is by saying, fine, I will just be okay with all that I have. Haven't you done this before? I have. I I see the emptiness in my life. I see how discontent I am. And I say, this is ridiculous. Look at everything that I have. I'm like richer than 90% in the world. I married so far up, it's a joke. I have this wife that somehow I tricked into marrying me. I've got these three great kids. I've got the best job in the world. And I try to shame myself almost into saying, just look at what you have and be satisfied. And that actually sounds good. But look what you're doing. You're still trying to find contentment in your circumstances, in what you have. Jesus actually warns us against that in this parable in Luke 12. There's this guy who's been very successful in farming And he builds a large unit to store all his grain. And then he goes home and he says, I've got everything I need. I'll just enjoy this stuff. Right? He's not trying to get anything else. He says, I'm just going to realize I can be satisfied in everything that I have. And here's what God says. You fool. You have all these things, yet you're not rich towards God. Which means if you just try to be satisfied in all that you have, even though you have more than you need you still won't find contentment. It's just not there. And the last way that we treat the symptom is I think we just blame ourselves. We blame the lack of contentment based on the mistakes that we've made in our past. And we just think, man, I would be so much more content if I hadn't done this in my past, if I hadn't been so sexually immoral, if I just prayed more, if I just tried harder, I wouldn't be so discontent. But see, the reason those are treating the symptoms is that what all those scenarios have at its core is this. You're just trying to find satisfaction in a change of circumstances or a change of, in what you have done or what you're going to do. And there's still no richness towards God. You keep trying to achieve contentment through horizontal things. And that was never made to satisfy you. So where's the hope? Like, what is the secret? And Paul in Philippians 4, he shows us. He says he learned it. It really is possible. And he says it's a secret. And perhaps, right, okay, look, the most misused verse in the Bible, here's the secret, okay? 
He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is not referencing like scoring more touchdowns in a game. I promise. Paul is not like referencing getting that job that you thought was finally impossible. Paul is saying this. He has found something in Jesus that is so real, that is so life-giving, it goes all the way to the heart. It goes beneath your behaviors. It goes beneath your circumstances. There's something about Jesus that is so satisfying. You know, push that out that it even brings contentment when you fail on the football field. It brings contentment amidst your just wreck of a life that you're living. It begins to heal the disease, which is our empty heart. I was listening, um, actually, thanks to Caitlin Corbett, our sound person. I was listening to an NPR radio show called, um, uh, oh gosh, is it StoryCorps? Is that what it's called? StoryCorps? 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 It was awesome. And they were interviewing uh, these children who had survived uh, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Some of you, gosh, were any of you not born in 1995? Scary. Uh, Anyway, the Oklahoma City bombing until 9-11 was the largest act of terrorism on domestic soil. I think it was something like 168 people died. And all of it's tragic, but one of the most painful tragedies was where the bomb went off right above it was the daycare in this federal building. And so something like 17 children died. And what this interview did is it interviewed children who had actually survived the bombing 20 years later. And so they interviewed this son who the bombing, he had survived it, but he had this permanent lung condition where, I mean, you could even hear it all, but he would, and then he would kind of talk. And he was 21, which means he was one when this bomb went off. And the story behind it goes like this. His dad was actually supposed to take him to the federal building that day. And his dad, when he usually would take him, it would be at 9.30 a.m. But he wanted to sleep in that day. And so he asked his wife to take him, which meant that he had to get to the building at 8.30. And the bomb went off at 9 a.m. And so, right, for the past 20 years, he has lived with this profound sense of burden and guilt that his son has irreparable injuries because he wanted to sleep in. And here's how the interview ends, okay? The son says this, I'm not angry about my situation. And you can hear, he says, I'm all right, I'm good. And then he says this, he says, Dad, you're always the coolest guy in the room. I like so many things about you. When I get old, I want to be just like you. I want to be the man. And he says this, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for that. I love you, and I'm glad you're my dad. And you could basically hear the tears. Like, it was the most almost tangible, audible picture. Like, you could hear the dad's guilt being removed by the love of his son who said, man, all this stuff is worth it to have you as my dad. And see, this is the key. What if there was something that was so good, that was so beautiful, that was so worth it for Jesus that he would say, man, to have that, I would go through suffering, I would go through death, I'd go through hell itself so that I could have it. Why did Jesus, who had everything, 
who had all power, who had all riches, who had all love, why did he leave it all and become poor and become weak and down a cross? He could have avoided it, sure. He could have. But if he did, he wouldn't have you. And see, what the 10th commandment is saying this, Jesus comes to this earth and he suffers the wrath of God in our place and he still has scars to prove it. And he says, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade any of it. The suffering, the wrath of God. Because I'm so glad that you're mine. And I love you. And I'm proud that you're mine. Because he gets to be your savior and your friend and your lover. The contentment of the triune God is your hope. It's your healing. Because what it means is this. The Lord is content. He always is. Which means that he is satisfied that you are his. He is just not disappointed in you if you're his. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God 2,000 years ago. So if you're his... It is just a tidal wave of affection that's yours. Because you wear his righteousness. Hear me, Christian. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are satisfied that you are his. And that's amazing. And so to quote my friend Les Newsom, this is how I kind of bring it to you. Your greatest hindrance tonight to contentment is not that you have not kept God's law. It's just not. It's actually your assumption that you thought you could keep it in the first place. That's what's driving your discontentment. The Ten Commandments are not here to tell you how to be a better person so that Jesus will finally love you. We have beaten that to death. The Ten Commandments are to kill any hope that you could possibly have that you could be good enough to make Jesus love you. And at that point, if you'll let the Ten Commandments kill you, all you can bank on is grace. All you can bank on is that he will freely love you because of who he is. And guess what? When you reach the point of spiritual poverty and your only hope is in the one who you have hurt and your sin has killed, man, you'll find that Jesus is always better than you think the one we are made for, the one who loves to forgive and loves to restore and who is satisfied to have you. Our coveting doesn't stem from bad circumstances. Our coveting and lack of contentment stems solely from the fact that you are looking in all the wrong places. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. And that is an invitation. An invitation to end your semester by singing, it is well with my soul, no matter what the circumstance, because if you have brought your sin and have received Jesus' righteousness, it is well with your soul. Because his love satisfies eternally. Let's pray. Father, would you would you do what, what we cannot do for ourselves? Would you enable us to, to rejoice in the God of grace? Lord, I feel like every week when we have considered your word, it just sounds too good to be true. That you love us so much that you would come and fulfill the law for us. That you'd come be perfect for us because we cannot be perfect. And it sounds crazy. Because we know at our 
we know what our Thursday's been like. We know what our week has been like. We are disappointed in ourselves. And it sounds crazy that you'd be satisfied to have us. But man, would you enable us to believe that tonight and heal us from the ways that we run around and abuse your love and try to find satisfaction in everything else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.